0: Welcome to
1: a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Virginia Allen. So, okay, we've all been trying to be productive during quarantine. And personally, I feel pretty good about what I've been able to accomplish from, you know, cleaning out closets to rearranging my living room. But being productive does look a little bit different for everyone and for our friend Taylor Swift. Well, yeah, okay. So maybe I shouldn't say friend because I've never actually met her. And Lauren, I know you would probably prefer to keep it that way. (laughs) Uh, But for Taylor, COVID has been a really productive time. She actually recorded and released a whole new album in just four months. Folklore is the name of the new record. It has 16 songs plus a bonus track. And she released it uh, just about a week ago, and it was a total surprise to her fans. Now, I have opinions on the album, uh, but Lauren, I'm going to let you go first. Have you listened? And if so, what are your thoughts? Do you have a favorite song? Of course I didn't listen. It's Taylor Swift.
0: I, <laughs> Lauren! Uh, I just, I know a lot of our audience loves Taylor Swift, and I love you for, for loving Taylor Swift, but I just don't get it. Like, her music is... This is mediocre. <laughs> Ever since I watched that Netflix documentary, I mean, it, I just <laughs> 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 not, not my thing.
1: <laughs> All right, that's fair, and I respect that. Um, and yeah, for for our fans out there, for our listeners uh, who you know agree with Lauren, you can hit her up on Twitter and uh, give her a virtual high five for that. <laughs> I personally like Taylor Swift. Now, of course, I do not agree with a lot of her opinions, specifically on policy issues. uh, But I do think she's a really talented artist. And I felt like with this album, it was so unique because it's, it's different than kind of the angry Taylor that I feel like we've gotten a lot of recently that's in your face. These are my thoughts. This is what I think. This was a lot more... Kind of contemplative Taylor, a little bit sad Taylor. Um, It implies there may have been a recent breakup, not sure. Um, Yeah, there's a, a big question. Hanging over Taylor's love life, always, I guess. Uh, But I think the thing that I like most about the album is after every song, you're kind of left wondering, wait, what was that really about? And your brain is going in different directions of like, okay, that could have been about a person. It actually could have been more so about like a larger situation. And I feel like that's good song writing when you leave the listener in this really contemplative place of trying to figure out your lyrics and unpack what you mean. So, I'm giving Taylor five stars on this album. I also really like folk music, and I like pop music as well, and she did a great job of kind of combining those two elements. So, anyway, Lauren, I'm going to have to disagree and say this album's good, but I, I respect your decision to uh, to refrain from listening. <laughs> All right. Well, Lauren, what do we have queued up on today's show? Luckily,
0: not much more Taylor Swift. <laughs> But we are excited to welcome Abigail Schreier to the show to discuss her new book, Irreversible Damage, The Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters. Schreier will explain a disturbing trend among female teen friend groups who decide together that they are men and want to make a medical transition. We also talk with Romina Baccia, our former Heritage Foundation colleague, about what the future may hold for America's economy. And as always, we'll be crowning our problematic woman of the week.
1: Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left.
0: If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it. Hey guys, just a note before we get into our next interview, it's so important and Virginia and I had such a great conversation with Abigail Schreier, but it does get a little graphic at times. So just a heads up if you have any little listeners in the car.
1: The word transgender was pretty uncommon in mainstream media and society only 10 years ago. Today, we regularly hear about someone who came out as transgender or who has begun transitioning to be a male or a female. The rapid growth in those who identify as transgender almost feels more like a social trend. We talk on this podcast a lot about this issue because it affects more than simply just those who choose to transition we know the impact biological males who identify as transgender can have on women's sports. And we know that for parents, siblings, and friends, it can be extremely challenging to watch someone you love mutate their body because they don't feel comfortable in their own skin. This is a really complex issue and a very sensitive one.
0: Abigail Schreier has become an expert On the transgender issue in recent years. She's interviewed parents of children who chose to transition, transgender youth and adults, the doctors who perform the surgeries, and those who refuse to do so, even individuals who have detransitioned. Schreier's research and findings are all composed in her new book, Irreversible Damage, the Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters. Abigail, welcome to the
2: show. Thanks so much for having me on. It's great to be here.
0: So I want to start out and acknowledge you are not a conservative activist or any uh, part of any right of center think tank. You are a journalist.
2: That's right. I I think that's, I appreciate you asking that because I really, you know, I really wrote this as, as an open investigation. I didn't have a dog in this race when I, when I, you know, when I set out to do this project, Um, I really just wanted to explore what was happening to teenage girls. So can you tell our listeners how you got involved in this, you know, really hot button issue? Sure. So I I wasn't actually interested in in, in taking this on per se. Um, A reader wrote to me, I write most often for the Wall Street Journal, and I had written a piece um, um, about the pronoun laws that we have in California and New York that assign uh, criminal and civil penalties for anyone who misgenders another person who uses the wrong pronouns or, or not their preferred pronouns. And I pointed out that this is straightforwardly unconstitutional in America. In America, you can't make people say anything. Um, not someone's preferred pronoun, not anything at all. Um, and, uh, or the government can't, rather. The government can't make people say things. And a reader wrote to me and she said, I've reached out to every mainstream journalist I can find. I can't get anyone to take this on. But my daughter got caught up in a craze. My daughter at 19 had gone off to college with a group of of friends, decided she was out of nowhere. She had had a lot of mental health problems, anxiety and depression and whatnot, and decided she was transgender and had gone on a course of testosterone. And in fact, Um, There are parents all across the country. And in fact, it turned out all across the West dealing with this very same thing. And uh, this woman who wrote to me, she was an attorney. She was correct. Uh, I couldn't get another journalist to take it on. I tried to pass it off to a real investigative journalist, which I wasn't. And um, when I couldn't get anyone else to take it on, I got back in touch with her and I said, all right,
1: tell me me what you know. And, And it sort of went from there. Wow. So you make the argument in your book, Irreversible Damage, The Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters, that the transgender movement is almost like a fad among young people, and specifically teen girls, that these these young ladies are going through a lot. Uh, and if they feel like maybe they don't fit in, or they're struggling with anxiety and depression, it can be easy to think, maybe I'm feeling so awkward and depressed because I'm actually supposed to be a man. And, you know, they share kind of this revelation with their friends, and their friends think, yes, that maybe is the case for me as well. And so they all decide together, hey, we're transgender. Can you just explain this a little bit further and why you think uh, many of these young girls don't just stop at saying, I'm transgender, but they actually begin taking hormones and even undergo transition surgeries?
2: Right. So my, my book is uh, jumps off from the work of um, public health researcher Lisa Littman at Brown University, who found that all of a sudden, adolescent girls, a demographic that had never experienced gender dysphoria, the severe discomfort in one's biological sense, had sex had never experienced this in any um you know real numbers all of a sudden had become the predominant demographic not only were teenage girls suddenly dominating the phenomenon but these were girls with no childhood history typically gender dysphoria began in early childhood so she noticed that this was a giant epidemic and it was it was peculiar it didn't look like typical gender dysphoria and the reason it didn't it was because not only was it afflicting the very population that it had never afflicted before and the very population that typically experienced hysterias and spread them, but that the, these girls were doing this in, inspired by social media and with their friends. They were coming out in the very short periods of time in friend groups. And there was just no reason you would see a 70 times the expected prevalence rate within clusters of friends. This was this was really strange. Um, and it turned out she was onto something. This is a phenomenon we've seen all across the West now. Adolescent girls claiming to have gender dysphoria spiked over four thousand percent in Britain. It's uh, numbers are extremely high in America as well, um, and in Canada and, and, and so forth across the West. And um and, and the problem of course is trans is a you know, to get back to your question, is a chosen identity. So at some point you say, I'm really a boy, and then the pressure begins, well, well, prove it, right? Because you don't look like a boy. So that at that point, that's when the pressure to start wearing a binder and then eventually move on to testosterone comes into play.
0: Yeah, I love, well, I don't love, but I'm so happy that this has a name of, of rapid uh, onset gender dysphoria
2: because it really is, allows us to address the problem. Right. Um, she, that that was the name Lisa Littman gave it um, because – the thing to know is that it's totally atypical. This is not what gender dysphoria looks like. Gender dysphoria, we have a hundred-year diagnostic history. It begins in early childhood, typically ages two to four. Little boys saying, "No, mommy, I'm not a boy. I'm a girl. Call me a girl's name. I only want to play with girls. I am a girl." That sort of thing. And there are certain diagnostic, you know, uh, symptoms of of gender dysphoria like, like those. Okay, um, very overt behaviors of insisting you're not a boy and that sort of thing. And it, in some, in overwhelming cases, it dissipated you know, as, as a boy got older, and most often the boys became gay men. And and in some cases, they became straight men. And in, and, and in a very small number of cases, you know, they stayed as what we used to call transsexuals. You're talking about 0.01% of the population. So one in 10,000 people, which probably means no one you know, um, or, you know, certainly no one you went to high school with. Now we have 2% of high school students claiming to be trans. So that's 1.1% Million American kids are 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 high school students, and you know from the people I interview, I expect that number to be much much higher. um, You know, since 2018 when that was taken, because when I get calls from parents, they're telling me 15 20 percent of their daughter's seventh grade class is claiming to be transgender.
1: So, what role do the schools play in this? I mean, are Are students learning about gender identity in their classes at school? Is this only happening in in sex ed classes? This is very pervasive. The thing to know is that gender ideology is taught in schools.
2: It's extremely pervasive. It's mandatory throughout the California public school system, and it's taught in many public school systems. But not only that, it's been brought in on a voluntary basis by many teachers who have taken it upon themselves to teach this. And And what does that mean? Does that turn a kid into a trans kid? No, of course not. What it does is it puts the idea in the child's head, a drumbeat begins in kindergarten, your your sex was assigned at birth by a doctor but you only know who you really are this is told to the kids from kindergarten on and then what happens to these girls is these teenage girls highly progressive middle class upper middle class girls they tend to be white girls overwhelmingly and they go through distress they don't fit in they don't, they're uncomfortable and when they you know during puberty, especially, they they have high rates of anxiety and depression and they hit puberty and they're uncomfortable in their bodies. And that's when the drumbeat that's been taught to them since kindergarten sort of readily leaps to mind. And they think, well, I, I certainly don't feel great as a girl. Maybe I'm really a boy.
0: And how does social media exacerbate
2: this problem? The number of trans influencers online are legion and they are very, charismatic, and they're really enjoyable to watch. Their videos tee up automatically. And I would say they are like the worst influence in every high school times a thousand, right? Because they they tend to have a lot of advice. They tell you going on tea will solve all your problems. They seem very cool. Their videos are intoxicating. You don't even have to go looking for them to find them. Very often. Kids will come across them on art sharing websites or other seemingly innocuous websites. And they're a little older, right? They're kids in their 20s making the videos. And they they really promise that if you just, you know, sort of accept that you're really a boy, if you just, you know, start a course of testosterone, all your troubles will disappear.
1: So what... I guess it's a wild argument that is being put forth here. So you use that phrase uh, that going on T, explain that. Um, And then, you know, is, is there some legitimacy to you actually do feel better as a woman? If you start taking testosterone, like how does that physically affect your body? Right.
2: So the thing to know is that first of all, these girls who are prey to this hysteria and it's, you know, it's girls who are already lonely. Now I say that, but they aren't uniquely lonely in a certain sense. And that is, this is the loneliest generation on record. They spend far less time with their, with their peers than previous generations and far more time online. So, the, so they don't talk to their girlfriends about their discomfort with their periods, with their bodies, whatever. What they do is they take their troubles online where this group of influencers can't wait to promise them, you know, all kinds of things, including going on tea will solve your problems. And the truth of it is the sort of insidious thing about testosterone is it has certain good effects. Okay. Now these girls are getting it at 10 to 40 times what their bodies would normally handle. And, um, and it does a few things. One, it delivers euphoria. So the girls feel great and they think, oh, my gosh, I was right. I really was supposed to be a man. It seems to confirm that. Two, um, it suppresses anxiety. And remember, anxiety is one of these girls' biggest problems. So it gets their anxiety under control. They get a euphoria and they're socially bolder and braver than they've ever been. And it redistributes fat. It really does seem to be a cure for female puberty. Of course, there are lots of negative side effects. It comes with enormous cardiac risk. Uh, you know, several times uh, the rate of heart attack because the testosterone thickens the blood. It um, uh, leads to, in addition to a permanent you know, hair, body and facial hair can alter facial features, lower the voice. It re, it alters private anatomy. It leads to clitoral enlargement, uh, which does not seem to go away. And then the biggest one, you know, that, that we're aware of is infertility. Um, it can raise the risk of endometrial cancer significantly, which is why doctors will recommend a prophylactic hysterectomy if you've been on it for five years.
0: Wow. Those are some major changes to the body. And I wanted to get into kind of what Safeguards are are in place or not in place, and what is the process of a young girl decides that she's transitioning? How does she go from from that step to, uh, you know, the hormones, and then even eventually the surgery?
2: If you talk to transgender adults as I as I have of previous generations, they will often tell you that there was a process that they went through to to begin their medical transitions. The thing to know today is that it is. It is easier to get testosterone for you, for a teenage girl very often than even to get her ears pierced. The age of medical consent varies by state. In Oregon, it is 15. In Washington state, you're entitled to mental health care without parental permission at 13. Um, so the age at which you can give informed consent varies by state and then there are clinics all across the country including places like Planned Parenthood that give out testosterone on on a first visit without even a therapist note so the you basically you go in you sign a waiver you insist you have gender dysphoria and you walk out that day with a course of testosterone which is a schedule 3 controlled substance
1: wow so Planned Parenthood is really kind of the the leading provider of a lot of these drugs. Is that what you're saying? It's
2: certainly a leading provider. I don't know if it is the leading provider, but um, yeah, it is a major provider of, of testosterone and it's, it's very easy to obtain.
1: Now, what about from, from a therapist's perspective, you know, how do conversion therapy laws affect what a therapist can and can't say to a teenager who comes to them and says, Hey, I'm, I think I'm maybe a man or maybe a woman, um, you know, what, what laws restrict what they can and cannot say. So conversion therapy bans, which we now have, in I think 19
2: States last time I checked, um, really were a Trojan horse because they they sort of purported to ban, you know, so-called gay therapy, gay conversion therapy, which, of course, brought to mind the really grisly practices, electroshock therapy and whatnot used in prior eras. So they purported to ban those things, but they actually included um, gender identity language as well as, you know, being broad bans on, on all conversion therapy, they included gender identity language, which meant for the first time, therapists could not allow a child to get more, you couldn't contradict a, a person who came to you and said they, they had gender dysphoria and that their problem was they were in the wrong body. Um, it made therapists extremely nervous to do that because if they didn't go along with it, they might be have been con, um, uh, accused of converting someone out of their gender identity. So they no longer were free to make, to even, they no longer feel free even to suggest, wait a second, you have a lot of other mental health issues. Why don't we deal with those first? They don't even feel free to say that.
1: Wow. That's wild. Um, it's really, it's not allowing a therapist essentially to, to do what they've been trained to do. Um, but you, you talked with a lot of teen girls when you were writing this book, young ladies who either had transition or were moving towards that step. What were their stories? What did they tell you about how they were doing now that they were you know taking hormones or maybe had had a mastectomy or other surgeries? Um, yeah, tell us a little bit about what they had to say.
2: You know, if these girls had gone off and were flourishing as, you know, identified boys, I wouldn't have written the book. If these girls weren't cutting off their families, experiencing massive depression, you know, not not dropping out of college, um, not getting jobs, I, I, I wouldn't have written the book. I sort of would have said, okay, they made this life choice, that's up to them. But instead, it was a picture of girls in terrible anguish Whose, whose solution they're running to, um, you know, surgeries and hormones had not made them feel better at all. And they certainly weren't thriving. And I'll, I'll give you one example of a young woman, Desmond, who told me the moment that she identified as transgender in high school, she got so much celebration, not only from the school therapist and from the school, but from every doctor she talked to. Everyone, you know, insisted she was right and she was brave and so forth. And she went on testosterone and the testosterone, um, which is delivered in extremely large doses to women, 10 to 40 times what their bodies would normally handle, um, uh, caused uh, uterine cramping, which it can do. It causes vaginal atrophy and uterine atrophy. And the uterine cramping was so severe, it necessitated a hysterectomy. And when she only when she woke up, and I think she was 21 at the time, when she woke up with a hysterectomy in the hospital, all of a sudden, she didn't have any cheerleaders around her anymore. And for the first time, she realized this has been a horrible mistake and, and, and no one was really there to guide her anymore.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, that, that seems like all young teenage women want is, is attention and to, to feel part of something. But I wanted to get a little bit deeper into what tr- detransitioning looks like. Is it as simple as stopping
2: taking the testosterone or, you know, do you need to get another surgery to change back? Oh, um, so it depends, it depends what you've done, but the alterations, of course, many of them are permanent, um, and it depends, um, so you, you can't change some of these things back. Um, and some of them can, you know, everybody's body is a little bit different. If you remove breasts, that's it. The game over. You, you can't get, you can't get the, those functions back. You can't ever breastfeed and you can't ever, uh, probably ever get any kind of erotic sensation that you once had. Um, you know, breasts, they, they, you know, I, I talked to surgeons and I learned that breasts are actually far more complicated organs than people think. Um, it really isn't just the, you know appearance of a breast, but there's a complicated structure there and it's all that functionality is destroyed. Um, but a, as for testosterone, um, some of the effects of testosterone will go away and some won't. So, um, you know, I, I, you know, the, you know, body and facial hair is there to stay. Um, the, um, you know, it'll change your voice. It'll change your, um, it may, may, permanently have altered your features a little bit, it, you know, it, it really depends on the body, you know, on, on the individual um, and, and their, you know, particular makeup.
1: So what are the emotional effects of a woman who starts taking those pills and then decides, okay, this isn't the road I want to keep going down, but they have, they've caused that permanent damage to their body?
2: you know the detransitioners are a group of very brave um you know men and women who who've come to you know they they certainly have a lot of clarity um and i always enjoy talking to them but um y- yes of course they're because they regret what happened they um you know there's certainly a risk of you know they're dealing with a lot of unhappiness um the, all the things that were covered and so easy to obtain to, to transition are no longer free. So if you want to go back, none of that's paid for all of a sudden, um, and no one's cheering you on for the first time. And in fact, you're considered a basically, you know, um, a turncoat by the community that encouraged you to transition in the first place. You will no longer be welcome in any of your former, you know, trans circles it, it, it's not an easy life necessarily. And, and these, these people are harassed terribly by trans activists who insist they want to insist they don't exist or that they were never really trans to begin with. Um, they, they they have to be very brave.
0: One of the main arguments for going ahead and, you know, taking the testosterone or having the surgery is that if a woman doesn't feel like she, who she really is inside, she's going to commit suicide, but it actually, the numbers show that the opposite is true. What is the suicide rate for, you know, people who do go ahead and and have the surgery or
2: take
3: the testosterone?
2: So I don't know that we have good numbers on that. Um, um, First of all, a couple of things, it, it depends what you mean. Um, there are long-term studies obviously of male to female transsexuals, but this is a fairly new population of these girls who suddenly decide they're transgender. Um, we, we've never seen numbers like this before between 2016 and 2017, the number of of um, biological females getting gender surgeries in the United States quadrupled. So we're, we're seeing an explosion. So for the first time we're seeing real regret. Um, Look, the rates of suicide are, are are high. I you know I don't want to undermine. You know I don't want to suggest that this isn't a population that we should be worried about. We should. Um, and and the problem is, of course, that we have no proof that they insist. You know, the the activists insist. Oh, if you don't transition, you'll kill yourself. But here are two problems. One, we have no proof that the gender dysphoria is what's causing the suicidality. We know that these are girls with a lot of other meth- mental health issues. And two, we have absolutely no proof that affirmation and transition, medical transition, um, relieves the suicidality. So given that, um, the, the suicide narrative is really, is really false. Um, it's, not, it, it's not something that should be used to coerce people into making irreversible decisions.
1: So those numbers that you mentioned, that increase is really shocking to see that it has risen that quickly in recent years of specifically these teen girls coming out as transgender. I mean, I guess, you know, those who are, are trans advocates would say, well, they've probably, you know, there's always been tons and tons of young women who have been transgender. They just didn't feel comfortable until now. Uh, what's your response to that?
2: Right, so I don't, I don't think that's right. There, there are three reasons. One, um, Lisa Littman pointed out that the prevalence rate within friend groups was seventy times what you would expect. So what that means was, and and not only that, but these girls were coming out with their friends within a very short period of time. So this wasn't the case of you might say, oh well, maybe there was just you know these are the this is the normal rate of we're returning to a normal base rate of transgender, you know biological females. Okay. But then there's, then you can't explain why it would cluster in friend groups and why those friend, why those friend groups would turn transgender together within a very short period of time. It wasn't like there were extant transgender kids in the population. They found each other in high school, but rather with a whole friend group would become transgender within a very short period of time. Um, So that's one reason. The other two reasons, of course, um, are, are number one, you know, and this is just my own, reason but number 1 i think following that logic if we're, the idea if the idea is we're just returning to a normal base rate now that there's greater societal acceptance we should be seeing women in their 40s and 60s coming out as transgender after all now is their moment now is the time when they have the most ex- acceptance they've ever had in their lives but of course we're not seeing that we're only seeing a giant spike in the same population that um, communicates and spreads and exacerbates, you know, things other hysterias like anorexia, cutting bulimia, this sort of thing. And the third reason I don't think that's right. um, I don't think it's right that there's this, you know, we're returning to a natural base right now that there's greater societal acceptance is because on, on their, on the activist theory, you know, it was the lack of societal acceptance and lack of ability to be who they really are. That's driving the suicide rate. But of course, then the suicide rate among this population of girls should be going down. But instead, we've seen it rise very, very sharply this decade, right? We know that we're seeing rates of suicide and depression in teens and even tween girls that really should shock everyone. We've never seen numbers like this. Um, So it is really the opposite of what you would expect if this were some sort of natural phenomenon.
0: So how do the parents play into this? Do most of the parents that you talk to, are they cheerleaders for a while for this? You know, are they automatically want to stop it? Um, you know, what is their relationship with this process?
2: So the parents I interview are overwhelmingly politically progressive, which, um, I think has to do with a lot of things, but one, one, one reason is of course their kids are in the schools that, that have a lot of gender ideology in them. Um, and they're overwhelmingly politically progressive. And what happens is the girl comes out at 11 or 12 or 13 and says she is gay or she's pansexual or she's asexual. She makes this announcement. And these parents who are very concerned, very loving and very devoted parents, and they love their daughters very much. And their daughters a very precocious young girl um, who also has anxiety and depression very often. Um, they... they 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 want to make her feel good and they say, Okay, honey, you're gay, that's great. Let's let's go to the pride parade, or we want to support you in this. And in many cases, within a year or so, the girl then kicks it up a notch and she says, Actually, mom, I'm really a boy. And it and a lot of the parents tell me this because they say, you know, I supported LGBTQ rights my whole life, but I wish I hadn't sort of so completely embraced this because I think my embrace of of her announcement at 13 led her to rebel even more. And and I think there's something to that, meaning that what the girl was asking for was an opportunity to individuate. But but Gen X parents are so eager to co-opt and and helicopter and be there for every one of their daughter's announcements from I want a a new ear piercing to anything else. They want to be right there with her and they want to do it, too, that sometimes when they don't let her have the rebellion, they don't recognize her sexual identity announcement as a rebellion and they co-opt that. She then she then goes for something more.
1: So then, what is your advice to parents whose daughter does come to them and say, "I think I'm a man"? I mean, are are there resources out there that parents can turn to? Yeah,
2: there are great resources. Parents of RGD kids is a great one. Uh, there's also Fourth Wave Now, um, but I, I would say that, and there are good psychologists, although they are they are harder to find because so many of them practice affirmative therapy. So so many of them are, will will actually just work to ingrain this further in, in her mind um, and. You know. Anyway, parents have called me. Parents called me just a couple of weeks ago. One parent called me to tell me that because of quarantine, she overheard her daughter's um, therapist. And the therapist had promised that she would never be an affirmative therapist. She wasn't going along with this because, of course, they didn't think that was the daughter's real problem. And lo and behold, she was able to overhear the session and and the therapist is using her male name and pronouns and, you know, Uh, and helping ingrain this. And, and that's, that's, that's something I've heard again and again. So what can parents do? Um, number one, they, they, depending on the age of the child, they really need to get their kid off social media if they can possibly do it. If we're talking about a tween or young teen and you can bar social media, it's a really good idea to do. We know that it's linked to extraordinarily high rates of depression and anxiety It's literally pushing a mental health crisis on our, our teen girls. We really shouldn't, they shouldn't be on it. Um, but to, to a few other things. Number one, they, 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 they should oppose gender ideology in the schools. Parents have no idea how radical it is, how aggressively it's being pushed, and it's really confusing an entire generation. Um, and we're seeing that. We are seeing rates of LGBTQ. I mean, you know, just this year, I think in 2020, I think it was even 2020, there was a news report that um, um, at Evergreen State College, half the student body was identifying as LGBTQ. So we know these rates don't make any sense. They really aren't organic or natural in the population. So you know, pushing a, a new ge- you know gender ideology, pushing the idea that they, these kids need to experiment with a new ideology and a new orientation and new gender is really producing a lot of these kids who identify as trans. We need to get that out of the schools, and then. Another thing, and by the way, that doesn't mean we can't show compassion for transgender students in the school. Of course we should, but we should reject the notion that in order to show compassion, we have to indoctrinate an entire student body. And and the third thing I would say is it's really important to, to remind parents that they're the parents for a reason. Their daughters may hate them for a while when they, you know, put limits on her but they don't have to go along with every pronouncement she comes up with. And they don't have to think she's right about everything she says about herself, even claims about sexual orientation or sexual identity. She may just be 11 or 12 or 13. So um, um, anyway, those are, those are three uh, quick ones.
0: So this isn't transgender isn't a new phenomenon. Why is this moment unique in the medical history of transgenderism?
2: You mean, why are so many people coming out with atypical gender dysphoria, claiming to be trans today? Yeah. Why today? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, a few reasons. You know, girls—we've always had this population of girls in severe distress, okay, um, in, in, in a lot psychological pain. Um, it, they've never experienced pain in the in the numbers they have today, but there's always been these girls in pain who look to the culture for an explanation. And in prior decades, they said, "Oh, I'm so fat." If I just threw up more or if I just stopped eating, i will I'll be happier um, and they they in that in that way where they really increased and spread their own anorexia and bulimia through their friend groups. so today they're doing it with this transgender identity they're doing it with oh, if only if I were a boy, my, my troubles would go away um, the The thing is today for one thing, we're seeing girls in greater psychological pain than we've ever seen teens and tweens. Uh, largely fueled by social media and feelings of inadequacy it produces, are more unhappy and in and psychological pain than we've ever seen before. Um, these are really fragile kids. They've been really um, helicoptered, and they, they are, you know, things that would be humdrum to prior generations are absolute crises for these girls, like getting dumped, like not fitting in with a group of friends, like losing a grandparent when you're in middle school. These aren't these are unpleasant things, but there are things that other generations were able to take in stride, and for these girls, are absolute crises. Um, so that's part of it, and that, and I think one part is that they've noticed that girls and women have really fallen in the in esteem in the broader culture. They see the men; they know men can waltz right into their um, bathrooms and shower rooms now, claiming to be girls. Um, they they know they aren't being protected, and, and they know very few even women are standing up for them.
1: Wow. All right. Well, you can find Irreversible Damage, the transgender craze seducing our daughters on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your local bookstore. It's also available on Kindle and through the Audible app. Abigail, thank you so much for your time today. We just really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much, too. I just want to
0: highlight your compassion. Um, You know, it's such a difficult issue, and you're so compassionate to both
1: sides. It's just been really a pleasure talking with you.
2: Oh, thank you. Thank you very much.
1: All right. Now stay tuned for our conversation with Romina Baccia about the future of America's economy. But first, I have to tell you all about a truly great way to stay in the know on current events this summer the Heritage Foundation offers multiple live webinars every week that dive into issues facing our nation today. What I love about these webinars is that they offer expert analysis on things like the state of our economy, our relationship with China, how the medical community is fighting COVID-19 and much more. So go ahead and visit the events page on the Heritage Foundation website and start learning today.
0: We are joined today by Romina Baccia, the former director of the Grover M. Herman Center for the Federal Budget at the Heritage Foundation, and just a dear friend of the show. Romina, thanks so much for coming back today. Thanks for having me. You recently transitioned into a new role, but we are so happy to have you back one more time because you've just been such a great guest so many times. Ramina, in a few minutes, we're going to talk about the state of the economy, but before we get into it, I want to ask about your story and how you immigrated to this country.
3: Yes, thank you. This is a, a long story, but it also um, had, a, had a recent highlight, which is that I came to America in 2004, so almost 16 years ago. But it was only last August that I finally became a U.S. citizen. So it's been, a, it's been a long and a very personal journey for me. And when I first came to the United States, it was right after high school, and it was almost by accident. I was looking for a different experience to go abroad so I could clear my head and figure out what I wanted to study or what kind of profession I wanted to go into And I ended up um, in Virginia working for a family as an au pair. So I got a really great immersive experience, learning about American culture by living with an American family. And I just really loved um, my experience. And what what I realized is that this uh, this land of opportunity that people talk about is not just a slogan, but it's really true. I really got the feeling, and I think I've lived this since coming here, that anything is possible in this country. It doesn't matter where you come from, your cultural background, anybody can make it in America. This is a land where if you, if you work hard and with a little bit of luck, um, you can really get ahead and realize um, any and all of your dreams Um, And the other thing I found so remarkable and which was one of the driving reasons for me to become an American last August is that anybody can become American. This is a land that was made up of of immigrants and it doesn't matter your color or race or your country of origin. um, Anybody is welcome here and anybody can become American.
1: Ramina right now, Unfortunately, uh, I feel like America is not doing very well in the news. It's, it's being spoken of very negatively. Uh, and what you're saying, we're not hearing a lot of people say. And, you know, you, you could have come to America and maybe stayed for 10 years and kind of built up your career and then returned uh, back, back home. But why, why did you decide to stay and make America your, your new permanent home?
3: Yeah, because America is my home now. I went to I went to college here and the opportunities even then were so open-ended. I I didn't have to make a choice of major. I could I could really figure out where my strengths were, where my interests were and where those two intersect to uh to make a career based on my my skill set rather than some predefined professional track which is how the system was operating in Germany at the time i also love the fact that in america if you if you work hard uh, you can do anything it you don't have to come from a wealthy family or even a middle class family you can start from nothing and and make it in this country that, that's just been my own experience um Because I I grew up in in poverty in Germany. My mom is disabled. We were on welfare for a while. And when I came here, I I had very little to start with. And now I own my own home. I am happily married. I have a master's degree from an American university. And I led a a research center at the most influential think tank in the world uh, at the Heritage Foundation. It's just to me, when I look back on my journey, um, the opportunities that this country has afforded me, I don't think I could have had anywhere else. And this is why I love this country, and that is why I will proudly proclaim that America is a wonderful place and truly the land of opportunity. Wow. That, Ramita, you just, you,
0: <laughs> you always inspire us. And so we're just so happy to have you on the program. And you know we were going to do this later in the interview, but I just right now I think it's the perfect moment we are going to crown you the problematic woman of the week and we' just <laughs> <laughs> you know you just have such a inspiring story and and someone who really just embodies what the problematic woman of the week and what really American should be is proud and and hard and and wanting to bring other people up with them so yeah, we're, we're just honored to have you back. And, and um, I never knew that you were an au pair when you came to the, to the United States.
3: Yes, I was. And thank you so much. I'll, I'll gladly accept that crown. And <laughs> I just want to say, you know, um, every, every country has problems. You know, we as people have problems. But the important thing is that we keep our eye on the ball and on the promise and the idea um, that is America and, and continue to strive to be better and to fix our problems. But I think it starts with recognizing what is good in this country, and then trying to do more of that. And we should recognize um, our shortcomings and atrocities that have happened in our history, and at times still happen today. And that's why a free press is so important. So we can bring those issues to light. But we shouldn't lose sight of just the wonderful idea that is America, our Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence, the strength of our Constitution to preserve this republic uh, that protects minorities. That's what really is key here, because the individual reigns supreme in this country. And we must never forget that. And then with that in mind, with that solid and strong foundation, we can continue to make America live up to its promise for truly everyone. And I believe we have the capacity and the potential to do that. Wow. Yeah. Uh, So
1: good.
0: (laughs) Well, Romina, you are a economic expert and and we definitely want to get into that. I, I think the economy is on everyone's mind. And, you know, we were at such a high just months ago. And ever since this COVID crisis, the economy just keeps sinking lower and lower Do you think we've hit a low due to COVID? Do you think there's worse stuff to come? Can
3: we expect a recovery anytime in the near future? So I am somewhat optimistic that we're going to come out of this stronger than before. But a lot of it also depends on policy. Because what the what Congress has been doing is uh, spending a lot of money, and some of it was well spent to try and create a bottom below which um, individuals in particular uh, couldn't fall, and it's helped to boost consumption um, even during the worst of the crises. Now, some industries have benefited more than others, and then there are some industries like retail and restaurants that are still hurting deeply, and it's unclear. What the future looks like for many of these establishments, the the important thing is that we don't just pump money into the economy without thinking about the long term consequences and that the way in which we seek to support um, workers and businesses uh, in the United States um, is is, 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 is equ- as equitable and fair as we co- possibly can do so without picking winners and losers, because then we will introduce more distortions that will ultimately make uh, a, a, an eventual recovery uh, slower. This whole idea about, um, you know, stimulus spending that we tried after the Great Recession, it just, it didn't work then and it won't work now, but it certainly is a great way to burn money put us deeper into debt and actually slow the economy down for the long run. So we, we should continue to be focused on addressing the public health crises. So Americans are safe, they feel safe returning to work and um, participating in society, even if for the moment that includes social distancing and wearing a mask. Uh, but those are all important things to try and get us back to a new normal. Um, And hopefully this fall or winter we'll have a vaccine. And once that comes out and we're able to protect the most vulnerable, which especially at the beginning of the crisis, uh, many governors have done a terrible job of doing. Instead of targeting nursing homes for extra caution and care to protect the most vulnerable residents, we actually locked up healthy people in their homes, quarantined them and then caused uh, massive outbreaks in nursing home settings, which is why so many of the deaths from COVID-19 can be traced back directly to those care homes. So we need to uh, fix those problems, focus on the right populations that that need the most protection because they're most vulnerable, um, and and also be aware of long-run consequences and not abuse the ongoing crises to score uh, political points. And that's just really difficult to do.
1: So, Romina, I keep hearing people talk about how America is just printing more and more money and how, you know, these stimulus checks, you know, the printing presses are just running. Uh, And to me, I think, well, gosh, that has to have pretty dangerous long term effects because we know that, you know, the more we have a commodity, uh, the value of that commodity goes goes down and it's got to be the same With money. Are you concerned about the amount of the money that we're printing right now in America?
3: So the United States has this amazing benefit of being the world's reserve currency, which means that we can actually export a lot of um, the inflation we might otherwise have in this country. Because last I checked, roughly one third of all the dollars we create in the United States leave the country and they don't come back. They end up getting used in global markets, or they act as a reserve currency to stabilize other countries' currencies. And uh, that is a benefit that that no other country has. And so that's why we've been able to print so much money and not see immediate consequences. And this didn't start with the pandemic, but um, the Federal Reserve became very active uh, with money printing during the Great Recession. Uh, It was called quantitative easing, But it's basically the same thing. And so um, the concern, what I'm most concerned about is not the short run, the short run up in the debt that we're experiencing now as we're trying to fight this pandemic. But are we making progress after the pandemic is over to address the structural drivers of growing spending and debt? And the primary driver there is um, healthcare costs. And as the government has played a larger and larger role in controlling healthcare in this country and the third party payer system that came out of World War Two with employers providing health care and there really not being a market for individuals and doctors and hospitals, but this very distorted system, I think those have been the primary drivers of the run-up in costs in our healthcare system. And I think healthcare is something that is going to uh, continue to be incredibly important for Americans and the ability to be able to have access to care, uh, quality care, but at affordable prices, is something uh, that we're we're struggling with. Now, I'm optimistic because of all the waivers this administration has granted and all of the ways in which the pandemic has really highlighted the distortions in our healthcare markets, uh, many of which are caused by regulations and administrative burdens. And I hope that some of those temporary waivers will become permanent. um, And other initiatives this administration launched like association health plans, that make it possible for freelancers and independent contractors um, to gain access to health benefits at the same um, with the same tax benefits as only an employer could previously. I think uh, those are all moves in the right direction, and if we continue with this momentum, then we can address those structural drivers that threaten to throw the United States into a fiscal crisis um, in, in in the future. And when I say future. Um, I'm thinking possibly, you know, 10 to 20 years from now, depending on what happens between now and then. So I don't think it's too late. Um, And we continue to benefit from our status as a world reserve currency. But that also hinges on our ability to continue to uh, convince investors that the United States is a country that has a strong rule of law, that we're a stable country, a stable republic, and that it's the best place for people to put their money, especially in crisis and for as long as uh, we maintain that standing, um, we have a lot more leeway when it comes to fighting crises like this pandemic, including uh, by printing uh, lots of money.
0: So before the pandemic, we were experiencing record low unemployment, not just as a whole, but, you know, also with groups like African-Americans. How long do you think
3: it'll take us before we can you know, get back to normal? That is a very difficult question. We we really see when we have a strong economy and unemployment um, hits record lows, it's the most vulnerable populations, not just minorities, uh, but also individuals with disabilities that uh, tend to benefit the most from a tight labor market. Um, How long will it take till we get back to it? Well, after the Great Recession, it took almost 10 years now, this is a very different kind of crisis because this is a public health related crisis. So arguably, once we address um, the public health threat effectively, we should be able to um, return to a stronger economy much faster. Now, there's a lot Congress can do to make sure that happens. And that doesn't mean stimulus spending, but it actually means the opposite. It may, it means Um, Clearing the way for entrepreneurs and businesses to um, get established again, to buy up um, failing businesses and um, the the capital assets that come along with that and do so without unnecessary regulatory restrictions. So my colleagues and I uh, published a paper on what Congress can do to drive the recovery, and it really comes down to making it uh, much, much easier to hire people, train people, allow people to work across um, state lines and making it simpler um, from a tax perspective and regulatory perspective, like occupational licensing is still an impediment for many people to work in another state. If they have a licensed profession, those are all things where lawmakers at the state, local and federal level um, can clear barriers to allow the economy to recover much more quickly, to be able to get especially the most vulnerable people uh, back to work and and, and back to uh, hope as well. And, and hopefully being able to do so that doesn't take uh, 10 years like it did uh, sin- uh, after the Great Recession.
1: Romina, thank you so much for joining us today. It was awesome just to hear a little bit more about your own personal story and also to hear some of your expertise about our crazy economy right now. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's easy to get overwhelmed by the 24-7 news cycle. If you're looking for a way to keep up with the news that matters, The Daily Signal podcast brings you the top news of the day. Hosts Rachel Del Judas, Kate Trinko, Rob Louie, and myself, Virginia Allen, bring you headlines and interviews with lawmakers, authors, and conservative activists. If you're a conservative who wants to be on top of the news, check out The Daily Signal podcast, available every weekday morning. All right, it is now time for the Twitter question of the week, except uh, we're changing it up and we're actually gonna start doing a Twitter poll of the week. We did a poll a few weeks ago and it was such a success that we decided we're gonna give you ladies what you want and we're gonna keep the polls coming. So this week's Twitter poll is, do you like Taylor Swift's new album, Folklore? The poll is posted on the Daily Signal's Twitter page And I will share it on my page as well. Virginia underscore Allen five. Lauren, I'm sure you're going to share it. You'll be able to find it. It's going to be all over Twitter. So give us your opinion on the album. We want to know.
0: Yes, I will 100% share it. If you guys don't follow me, my Twitter handle is at Lauren E. Liz Evans. Probably the best source for both feminist conservative news and college football all in (laughs) one place. So true. So,
1: so true. (laughs) And with that, that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world, and we would greatly appreciate a
0: five-star review on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. Have a great week.